Hello, everybody. It's 6 o'clock, and we will start the webinar. This is Marianne Fessenden. I serve as the academic liaison for agriculture modeling and training systems, and am your American host for the Nutritionist webinar series. Welcome, and thank you for attending. These monthly webinars are intended to provide access to technical seminars on a range of topics delivered by internationally recognized speakers. This series is a unique three-language presentation held in English, Portuguese, and Spanish. These seminars are held the second Wednesday of the month at 6 p.m. UTC-4 or Eastern Standard Time in the U.S. A complete recording of archived webinars as well as the question and answer session for each will be available on the 3R Lab and AMTS websites. Hosted by AMTS in the United States, noted ruminant nutritionists will present in English while Marcelo Hentz-Ramos from 3R Lab simultaneously translates into Portuguese for Brazil and Paula Torillo translates into Spanish for Argentina. There will be a post-presentation question and answer period during which listeners can submit questions through me or Marcelo and Paula. This month we are also conducting four polls, the results of which will be available at the end of the presentation. Today we're pleased to have Mike DeGroat from Edge Dairy Consulting join us. He is going to focus on using byproducts while maximizing milk production with healthy animals. Mike DeGroat has been an independent dairy nutrition and management consultant for 10 years. He received a BS degree in dairy science and agribusiness from Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. His MS degree from Fresno State University in Ruminant and Nutrition and his PhD in Ruminant Nutrition from Oregon State University. His areas of focus include transition cows and feeding behaviors. Mike consults on over 30 dairies in California and Nevada. He's been active in the industry through the California RPAS chapter, where he co-authored a paper on the variability in chemical composition and digestibility of 12 byproduct feedstuffs utilized in the California dairy industry. Mike has been on the California Animal Nutrition Conference Committee for seven years and was the chair of the conference in 2011. He has been involved with several on-farm trials, including working with niacin in transition cows. Mike and his wife, Cheryl, have been married for 12 years and have two children, Carly and Colby. So at this point, I'm going to turn the presentation over to Mike. We will pause briefly in his presentation and do two brief polls um, at a convenient transition point. You'll have 15 seconds in which to respond, and he'll present some more. Then we'll do some more polls. So at this point, I'll let Mike take over. Thank you, Marianne. Can everybody hear me okay? Okay. Well, I'd just like to say thank you for uh, this opportunity, and uh, thank you for uh, tuning in to listen to this uh, webinar. Today I'm going to be talking about feeding byproducts and using AMTS on California dairies. Before we get started, I'd really like to know where we're at, and this is a slide that I use just uh, saying locating where we're at and where we're going from here. On this ship, there's many things that are occurring, and I think it's the same on the dairies that we work with today. As you can see, there's people that are actually working on the ship, as well as all these sails that are trying to keep this ship afloat. And it's the same with us on doing nutrition on the dairies today. 
Animals are very critical in the food and fiber system in the world. About 27% of the byproducts um, are generated in the worldwide, and about 40% of them are in the U.S. Understanding the use of these byproducts will become more important in the future as we have less and less acres going to row crops and more and more acres going into cities and permanent crops. Some of the rates of digestion on these byproducts vary tremendously, and we'll go through this a little bit as we go into the study a little bit. And I think that sensitivity analysis using current models may provide direction for future research. We're going to talk about a couple different things today, and I want to start with some definitions, one being byproduct feedstuffs, what they are, where they come from. The second would be byproduct wastes. And the third would be a byproduct equivalent, or how much is uh, uh, actually equivalent of a byproduct on the products that we use. So by definition, a byproduct feedstuff is a product that has value as an animal feed, and it's obtained during the harvest or process of a commodity from which human food or fiber is derived. And we'll get into some of these examples that uh, I feed out here in California, and probably a lot of you do as well. A byproduct feedstuff can um, come from production of, say, juice, for example, which creates uh, a byproduct citrus pulp. And basically the ginning of cotton lint from the textile industry would create what we use whole cotton seed as. A byproduct feedstuff can also result from the loss of uh, product value or loss of human food value during storage. An example of this would be bakery waste. We feed anything from bread to crackers to potato chips, etc. A byproduct waste is, designed, or is defined as a, a product that has little value as an animal feed, and it's obtained during the harvest or processing of a commodity from which human food or, or fiber is derived. And basically, the, the byproduct equivalent is equal to the percentage of an unprocessed commodity that becomes a byproduct feedstuff. So when you look at it in, in table form, you have a commodity that's, that uh, is used for human food or human textile, and you also have, it basically breaks off into three different areas, the human consumption side, the byproduct feedstuff, as well as the byproduct waste. Taking an example of sugar beets, sugar beets are actually about 61% sugar, which is used in human consumption. And then we have about 39% that goes into either byproducts or byproduct waste. 23% of that is used as beet pulp, which we feed the cattle and about 16% of sugar beets is used as molasses, which we also feed the cattle. Another example would be rice, where about 69% of it is actually human edibles into white rice, and the other 31% is into human, um, into uh, byproduct feedstuff of rice bran at 11%, or rice hulls at 20%, which we use for bedding. Wheat is about 78% used for human consumption with milled wheat, and the other 22% is used as a byproduct as wheat mill run or wheat middlings that we feed. Some of the byproducts that we feed here in California, this is uh, just some examples of what we have out here. This is a carrot byproduct. It's uh, pressed carrots that we feed to dairy cattle. A pretty good feed. It's very wet, so a lot of moisture in this feed, as you can see. And uh, we use this feed uh, quite a bit throughout the Central Valley. Another one that we use out here is almond holes. Our uh, acres per cow are a lot less than other areas of the world, and because of that, we do not have ample amounts of silage or haze that we need to feed. So in place, we use this byproduct of almond holes that we'll talk a little bit more about as we go into this. 
Another one is potatoes. Potatoes are a great source of starch, and we have several different places here in California that we grow these. And as a, as a, a cold potato, ones that do not make it to market, we use these in, in our rations um, quite extensively. Another big one is citrus pulp. We have several plants around here that uh, are producing this on a daily basis, and we're using this in our rations all the time. Another one is cold fruit. Living in the Central Valley, we have several different types of fruit that are grown here. This is a stone fruit, like a plum or a, a peach, and uh, we use these in our, in our pepper rations as well. So just to take an example of 100 pounds of oranges, out of that 100 pounds, we get about 50 pounds or 12 and a half gallons of juice, which is human edible. The other 50 pounds, or half of it, is turned into citrus pulp, which is inedible for the cows, or for the, for the people, but we do feed to the cows, which turns it into a human edible product of about two and a half gallons of milk. For those of you who like to drink beer, every 16 ounces of beer that's consumed, about 17 grams of brewer grains are generated on a dry matter basis. So keep drinking the beers. So why were we looking at byproducts? One of the main reasons is that cattle are pretty fickle. They like to have the same diet fed to them at the same time every day. And this is uh, one slide that I like to put up in my presentations. Okay, Mike, so the next slide is going to be our poll. You're going to have 15 seconds, participants, to complete this poll. So right now I'm going to open the poll. And if you can just read through that and answer. All right. And then we have a second poll. Answer this poll as quickly as you can. All right, thank you very much. From the University of California, Davis, the California Department of Food and Ag, as well as the California ARPAS chapter. We had several sponsors that were involved with this too. So between the, the four different groups, we looked at these 17 byproducts that we thought were important um, to feeding dairy cattle in California. All the sampling of these byproducts were um, done by inspectors from the Department of Food and Agriculture. We had 10 different samples at different times for all byproducts each dust. There were several nutrient measurements that we looked at to characterize these feed stuffs and um, we'll go through some of those now. The byproducts that we looked at included almond holes, beet pulp, both dry and wet, brewer's grains, both dry and wet, canola meal, citrus pulp, corn gluten feed, cracked pima cottonseed, whole cottonseed, distiller's grains, hominy feed, molasses, rice bran, safflower meal, soybean hulls, and mill run. At the time of the study, these were the most the popular byproducts that we looked at um, based on feeding rates. Some of the measurements include ash, dry matter, fiber, NDF, ADF, and lignin, and then protein. Crude protein, NDF, ICP, ADF, ICP, soluble crude protein, and amino acids in the insoluble residue. Results were displayed as mean values of these different measurements, NDF, ADF, and lignin, as well as crude protein, ADF crude protein, and soluble crude protein. 
We also looked at the coefficient of variations to figure out what the standard deviation was of the mean to see how variable these products were. I want to go through a few of the slides um, based on some of the, the different results and look at the differences. Cracked Pima is a different type of seed that we use for cottonseed. Um, we use that here in, in California. We grow a lot of it here versus whole cottonseed. It's a little bit cheaper than whole cottonseed, and uh, we'll talk about the differences between these two. If you look at the NDF values between cracked Pima and whole cottonseed, you can see that the, the values for Pima are a little bit lower, but there is more variation in that to NDF. And same with ADF. You can see that the ADF is about six points lower, but a lot more variation based on the CVs. Lignin as well, and still seeing that common theme of a higher variation based on the products that we looked at. If you look at the crude protein, both, both cracked Pima and whole cottonseed were fairly similar in crude protein at about 25.5 to 26%, with not a lot of variation between the, the samples. ADF ICP was about the same as well as uh, soluble crude protein with a little more variation on the cracked Pima side. So when you look at the two main factors that we're looking at on, on these speeds, mainly being the crude protein and the fiber fraction in NDF, there was quite a bit of variation on the fiber side, but the crude protein was fairly similar between these two products. In graphical form, you can see that the crude protein were fairly similar with, with not uh, very large tails on this. The frequency was pretty consistent between the two products. When you look at the NDF fraction, you can see that the whole cottonseed was fairly consistent throughout, where we had quite a bit uh, of range on the, the variation of, of Pima from anywhere from a 30 NDF up to about a 55 NDF. Some other products that we looked at, including almond holes, rice bran, and wheat mill run. We put these on here just to see some of the variation, especially in almond holes depending on the hauler and how we're, we're processing those, what type of almond holes we're dealing with, we can see a lot of variation in fiber levels um, based on that. And you can see that the CVs on these were all over 10, except for uh, on the mill run on NDF and ADF. So our average NDF on almond holes was about 34%, 33.9, where our ADF was about 29%, 28.7, with about 12% lignin in this product. Looking at crude protein, we saw some more variance in, in crude protein on the almond holes and not as much variance on rice bran and mill run when it came to crude protein. So when looking at fiber or NDF variability, the, the feeds that had the most variability in this study included distiller's grain, hominy, almond holes, cracked pima, rice bran, and beet pulp wet. Some of those products with the least variability on fiber were mill run, soy holes, whole cottonseed, safflower meal, canola, and brewer's grain dry. Looking at crude protein variability, the ones with the most variability were corn gluten, almond holes, citrus, soybean holes, brewer's grain wet, and beet pulp dry. The least variable included mill run, whole cottonseed, rice bran, brewer's grains dry, canola meal, and distillers. So what does this mean? Basically what we found is that there was no byproduct feed stuff to be the most or the least variable across all nutrients. And that's concerning when you're putting rations together because you need to know what you're feeding. And when there is some variation in the products that you're feeding, it, it really can be detrimental to the cows or helpful depending on what you're feeding. Some of the ingredients that were the most variable across nutrients included distiller's grains, 
almond holes, and hominy feed. And the least variable were mill run, whole cotton seed, and canola meal. In 1973, there was approximately 912,000 tons of byproduct feeds that were fed to ruminants, compared to 800,000 tons of grain. And that number continues to climb. At that time, it made up about 12% of the total feed utilized. That number is closer to 25% today. <clears throat> we wanted to look at almond holes in particular because they're such a big part of our rations out here. And we took the ARPAS study, which is the top numbers here, um, just on crude protein, ADF, NDF, as well as some minerals, looking at calcium and phosphorus. And we looked at what was in the NRC and also a database that UC Davis had put together to see how variable they were. And you can see that on average, the crude protein in the NRC is much lower than what we have um, on the two other studies, whereas fiber varied a little bit depending on which, which uh, data set you were looking at. We did the same with brewer's grains just to see if there was some differences based on what the, is in the NRC versus a UC Davis sample set as well as the ARPAS sample set. And UC Davis and NRC were fairly close on crude protein, but the ARPAS study actually came back a little bit higher on crude protein and quite a bit different on NDF and ADF. ADF not so much, but NDF quite a bit. We had an average of 37.3 where um, the NRC is in at 42. Beet pulp was a similar story where ARPAS study, we had 14.2% crude protein. The UC Davis study actually had 8.7% crude protein and the NRC was 10.1. Big differences again on ADF and NDF, looking at an average of 20.3 on the ARPAS study, 18.8 on UC Davis, and 25 on ADF for NRC, and uh, a range from 35 to 44 on NDF. Another big difference was just on some of these macro minerals. The UC Davis study came in with 1.14% calcium, where we actually had 0.45. This is some work that we did, too, just looking at different labs, trying to compare between labs. We sent 10 samples um, of the same sample to two different labs just to see the difference between them. And these were the averages that we got on those, those samples. Um, lab 1 had an average crude fiber of 19.4, and Lab 2 was an average crude fiber of 17.4 on the same samples. Standard deviations were the same and CVs were, were uh, fairly close as well. I wanted to see if uh, we took the 10% the of the, uh, the samples out that were the extremes, either high or low, if they would actually get any closer. And there's still about a two-point difference between those on crude fiber of the almond holes. Based on some work that we're doing here in California right now, uh, the crude fiber system is, is, is going to be going away. Um, we're working with the California Almond Holders and Processors Association to try to figure out what the, what the right test is for um, looking at the fiber levels of almond holes. Right now, it looks like we're going to be going to ADF until all the labs can have um, some of the new numbers coming up that are going to be put into the models. So what is the impact of this variability? There, there's so much variability that goes on in the feeding of the ration. So the, the extent of the variability really depends on the nutrient. Whether we're looking at almond holes or whole cottonseed, there's, there's quite a bit of difference between those. Um, the cost of the ingredients is impacted by it. If uh, we think we're getting a certain amount of protein in these, these ingredients and we're not, um, that incre increases the cost of, of that ingredient. 
how much of the ingredient we actually feed in the diet will impact this as well. I've fed up to 10 pounds of almond holes, no problems, but uh, if I feed 10 pounds, that means there's more variability in that diet. Another issue is the accuracy of the scales or the ingredient addition. If uh, on our clients, what we do is we try to have our guys look at the scales at least, you know, once a quarter just to make sure that the scales on some of these big feed wagons are actually accurate so we know how much we're putting in. The mixing efficiency is, is affected, too, depending on particle size, things like that, as well as feed bunk management. And I guess the biggest one is the one that I put on the bottom, and that is the diet that's actually consumed by the cows. We're trying to get um, into micromanaging some of these nutrients and nutrition of these cows, and Dr. Taluki will be talking about this next month. But when we have variability in our feedstuffs, it, it can wreak havoc on the rations that we put out. We're also in the process right now of doing some future research. We'd like to do the same study again and uh, look at uh, some of the variation that we see today and also put um, a modeling component in there with some of the new stuff that's coming out in the new biology. We'd like to include that in this study and see if we can get some, some good data on some of these byproduct feedstuffs that we're feeding. There's not a whole lot of information out there on that. We'd like to look at both the chemical composition, but also the digestion rates for selected items. With uh, some of the, the rates changing in the models, we'd like to know what we're feeding, and I think uh, that would be a good study for us to do. California ARPAS is uh, considering this right now, and we'll be voting on in May if uh, this is going to happen or not. <clears throat> Same with the forages and concentrates. Not only the chemical, chemical composition of those, but uh, digestion rates are changing as well. We have two more polls to put up, and again, we'll be giving you the answers to the, or we'll, we'll give you the results of these at the end of the presentation. So here's the first poll. You have 30 seconds this time. I'll read it. How do you decide which byproduct to use? A, utilize the software to balance the byproduct, the diet. Whatever, B, whatever product is available, I buy some. C, when forage is not enough, I tend to use more product. D, I use the ones that are traditional in my region, and E, I don't use any products. When you use a byproduct, what nutrient values you enter in the software for diet formulation? A, book value. B, send to a laboratory and wait for analysis. C, use the nutritional value supplied by, provided by the supplier. D, look at the internet and E, whatever values my diet formulation software has. Well, thank you very much. Mike, I'm going to pass the ball back to you, and you can proceed. That's the last time I will interrupt until you get to the end. All right. Thanks, Marianne. So that was just kind of the introduction into some of the studies that we've been doing on byproduct feedstuffs and, and where we want to go in the future. I want to talk a little bit about how I use EMTS in um, feeding cattle and some of the values that we look at. This is a, a program that we use um, that I helped create with my major professor while we were at Oregon State, Dr. Patrick French, looking at the predicted value uh, of what a break-even feed price um, is on, on some of these feedstuffs. And every week we get market value for all of these feedstuffs that you see on the bottom here. And we put them into this program, and it tells us what the predicted value is. If it's if it's a good buy, 
it comes up in green. If it's a okay buy, it's it's priced right, it comes up in blue. And if it's overpriced, it comes up in red. So you can see that based on the, the latest ones that we did, distillers grains and corn gluten feed are, are two really good buys for us out here in California right now. And some of the bad buys include the alfalfa haze and soybean meal. So we look at this in several different ways. The first is just a composite of all the feedstuffs, just to show us what is a good buy versus a bad buy. We can break it down even further if we're looking for a certain type of feed, if we're looking for an energy feed or a protein feed, and we can break it down just on feeds that are, are based on energy, so like rolled corn, distillers, grains, soy holes, corn gluten, citrus. All of these products we use for energy, too. And it's showing us that rolled corn and distillers are, are really good buys today, saying that they're priced about $150 above where they should be based on the market. And cottonseed Pima is a, a bad buy, about $100 over where it should be on the market. This is not predicting what the price should be, but it's predicting the value of the feedstuff based on um, all the feeds that are in, in this, this um, set. This is looking at the protein feedstuffs, showing us that the alfalfa haze, if we're looking at it just from a protein standpoint, is not a good buy. Whereas on the com compository, the, the soybean meal was overpriced, but looking at it for just a protein feed, it's priced about right compared to everything else that's on there. We also do statistics on this, and it actually puts out this regression output saying how, how well these coefficients are, are uh, matched up. So on this study, you can see the one that we just ran, it was a R squared of 0.93. So I'm pretty confident in this. And these are the five things that it's, that's, it's breaking down um, on those feedstuffs. It's looking at digestible rumen degradable protein, rumen undegradable protein, NFC, fat, and effective NDF. And based on the prices that we put in, it gives us a, a coefficient of what one point of RDP is costing us what one point of rumen undegradable protein costs us, and so on. So as you can see, it's almost $8 per point of rumen degradable protein, whereas fat is almost $13 per point of rumen of digestible fat. The interesting one is NDF, looking at effective NDF. So every point of effective NDF that we put in the ration is costing us about $2.06. This program is very similar to other programs that are out there. I know Ohio State, the Ohio State University has one called Sesame, and this was just our version that we put together while we were um, up at Oregon State. Another thing this program does is we actually put the, the milk price in, too, and we'll get to that in a minute, but this just shows on a graphical form what the cost of the ration components are. And this is uh, looking at the last four years. I apologize, I should have updated this to the latest, but um, basically showing like rumen undegradable protein. Um, it's gotten as high as almost $14 per point or per pound of rumen undegradable protein, whereas some of these that have stayed fairly steady over the last four years include NFC and effective NDF. So the protein seemed to vary a little bit more by time and by season over years where the um, fiber and the energy seem to be fairly constant and actually coming down a little bit. This is looking at the feed costs and the returns. 
Our, our milk price, you can see from 2010, we were, we were down to about 14 cents per pound on the milk price, where this past year we got up to about 23 cents per pound. So quite a big difference over the last four years on our milk price, which we've seen everywhere. And our ration cost has been in as low as 10 cents per pound up to about 16 cents per pound. And I would say right now we're about 15 to 15 and a half cents per pound of dry matter on ration costs. The green line is our income overfeed cost. And you can see for basically from January of 2013 through May of 2014, this line has increased significantly where we're, our income overfeed cost is, is up to about 13 cents per pound. When we're putting feeds into AMTS, which we use, one one of the things that uh, I look at quite a bit is I want to make sure that some of the labs that we use and some of the products, the studies that we've seen match up. So we went through when we were putting all the feed stuff in for 6.5 and actually looked at the AMTS, the old library versus the byproduct study. And then we took three labs here in the United States, Rock River Lab in Wisconsin, Dairy One in New York, and Cumberland Valley in Maryland. And we asked them for their averages on these samples. And anything that came through those labs as an almond hole was, was put into this um, database. And we looked and we compared between what was in the AMCS library between these, these studies as well as the three labs. And there was quite a bit of difference that we found um, depending on the lab that we used or looking at it compared to the ARPAS byproduct study. So this is just one example that we looked at. Um, the big one was ADF. You can see an NDF that there was quite a bit of difference between the labs with a high of 39.4 on NDF and a low of 33 from what's in the feed library. So. I did, we did this just to see if what we were putting into the model was actually accurate. And what we did after we did this is we took out the, we put all the samples in together and came up with our own feed library based on the individual products that we're using. Uh, another thing that I just want to talk about, this is some work done by Diamond D, looking at uh, just the variation in fat uh, over time. And you can see that every year we have a high of, um, in our fat percentages during the fall and into springtime and a low during the summertime. And what's interesting about this is regardless of where you're at, it seems to be the case um, that we have these highs and lows. So this is, this is not something that's just typical of California or New York per se, but everywhere that we have quite a bit of a difference between the high and the low on the butter fat. And that's not just a ration change, it's, it's uh, environmental as well. One, one thing that we look at on our herds is we are trying to track as much as we can um, on the individual herd. This is a uh, production summary that we have for one of our herds. Looking at uh, going across the top, we, we get gallons per day from the creamery, so we know exactly how many gallons per day that dairy is producing. And then butter fat, protein, and solids. And then we do a seven-day average because you can see, like on this dairy, there's some days they have more pickups than others. So we try to get get rid of some of that noise by looking at the seven-day average. And then we know how many cows are milking on that herd, which is the next column. And you can see the data that we have back to 2009 on this herd. Um, and then the dry matter intake we're getting from a feed management software, whether it's Easy Feed 
or FeedWatch or TMR Tracker. And then we know the pounds per cow. So, and then we use a, a number that's a trademark number of money corrected milk that looks at the price of butter fat, the price of solid not fat here in California, as well as the price of milk on overbased milk. And it gives us a, how many pounds of money corrected milk they are. And then we look at the difference from last year. I want to see if that variation that we saw in the butter fats or whatever we're looking at, if there are some differences from last year, whether we're producing more or less milk. And then we also put the milk price in there so we can see how much um, income over feed costs we're actually getting. And then we do feed efficiency based on money corrected milk as well. The cost per head is the, the cost of the ration. So our average for this month was $7.79 that we're looking at. And then we do two income over feed costs. One would be static and one would be actual. The static income over feed cost is where we keep the price of feed and the price of milk the same. And I do this because I want to see if the cows are actually doing better or if it's just based on a higher milk price or a lower feed cost. And then the actual includes the actual feed cost for this dairy and the milk price that we're getting currently. So we use Rock River Lab as our lab, and this is a, a typical sample that we get back on a corn silage. Um, just looking at some of the numbers that we look at, moisture is important and, you know, starch is important, but we, we get down into these digestibilities and we're, we're looking more and more at this stuff based on the new model. One number that I want to point out to you is this lignin, um, calculated using 120 hour undigestible NDF. Rock River has been using 120 hour for quite some time and we're in the process of actually getting that switched over to 240. UNDF so we can put that into the model as well. I don't think there's going to be a whole lot of difference between 120 hour and 240 hour, but uh, we'll see as those numbers start coming out. And then down here on the digestibilities, we get traditional 48 and 30 hour um, traditional digestibilities, and then we're also running these standardized digestibilities of 24, 30, 48 hour. And then we get a, a digestibility at 120 hour as well. And one number that we really look at to compare between feedstuffs is this TTNDFD, which is Total Track NDF Digestibility. And this is a good good um, measuring tool for you to look at when you're looking comparing between feeds, between piles. Um, over time, you can see how this digestibility actually gets affected. And then we have a dynamic KD rate that we use in our program, which includes 24, 30, 48, and 120 hour. And this one, for example, is 7.23. The average on this feed uh, for the last three samples was 6.1, so the digestibility is actually going a little, or the KD rate has actually gone up a, a little bit from um, the average of the last three samples. So another thing that we're looking at is the variability in our, in our forages. And this is a program that my partner Jordan Van Grau and I have put together so we can keep a, a good handle on that. Um, this is a, a program that we got that when we get our feed samples back from the lab, we actually put them into this program before we put them into AMCS. And what this program does is it looks at the last five samples and does statistics on it to see whether there's any variation in that sample that we took um, compared to the last four. So you can see on this sample for this corn silage that we just looked at, 
Um, the dry matter has been bouncing around from anywhere from 36 down to 32. So, but you look at the, the top line, which is the most current sample, anything in green or red means that it's statistically different, two standard deviations away from the average of the other four samples. And I do this because if, if I pull a bad sample, I want to know it. I don't want to just put it in the program and then try to reformulate the ration. I want to make sure that our forages are correct that are going in. So what this program does is it will actually pop out a recommended sample that we need to put into AMTS, and then we take those numbers, and that's the numbers that we put into AMTS based on the last five samples. So on this dairy, this is our, our um, milk cow premix that we use. Um, this is just a composite analysis report that comes out of AMTS. We're using about seven pounds of canola meal, about 1.95 pounds of milk cow mineral, 1.75 pounds of almond holes, molasses, and half a pound of straw for a total of 11.95 pounds. I apologize if this is a little small, but hopefully you guys can see this. This is the ration output that we use on this dairy. We're feeding four pounds of whole cottonseed, six pounds of hay, that premix at 11.95 pounds, 12.75 pounds of rolled corn, five pounds of wet distillers, 4.75 pounds of wheat, and 16.25 pounds of corn silage for a total of 60.7 pounds. And that's about what our high cows were eating on this dairy. Our cost on this ration was $8.71. Shooting for a little higher, this is on the old model. I apologize for that. It's not on the new model. But um, shooting for a little higher MP versus ME allowable milk on this ration and um, looking at about 16.79% crude protein. Our physically effective NDF was 24.1 and NDF around 32. Sugar levels on this, based on the almond holes and molasses mainly, uh, came in at about 5%, and starch was running just under 25%. One thing that I do want to say, um, when you are inputting um, feedstuffs into AMTS, another important part is inputting cattle inputs. And I would recommend that uh, you look at that as far as days in milk, um, production levels, and weights. Weights are probably the most important thing. There's a great blog on the AMTS website for that, too. So this is another dairy I just wanted to show you, basically the same data that we're looking at. And you can see on, on this dairy, we're, this is more current up to 2015 data. Um, we're running about a 3.64 butterfat for the month, 3.36 protein, and 8.96 solids. Um, our average dry matter intake on this herd for the month of February has been about 53 pounds pulling about 84.6 pounds of milk. So our feed efficiency, or money corrected feed efficiency, is around a 1.65. On this dairy, we're actually feeding shredlage, and this is our third year of feeding shredlage. Um, when it first came out, we adopted it on this dairy, and, and we've had our bumps along the road, but uh, I'm pretty happy with the product. This is uh, last year's product that we're feeding now. And it's been testing fairly well. I'm uh, pretty happy with the results that we're seeing with this product. So dry matter on this was a 32. We are, are now actually getting ash-free NDF, which is 41.95 uh, on this versus NDF at 44.27. Um, we are make, currently making the switch over to ash-free NDF or NDF-OM, and uh, we will be putting these into the model as well. 
Lignin is still being calculated at 120 hour. Like I said, hopefully within the next couple months, we will be moving over to 240 hour. Another thing that Rock River has been working extensively on is, is starch digestibility, and we're actually able to get some um, rates for starch out of this as well. Looking at both a three-hour and a seven-hour, we're able to get a rate on that. And then the same traditional and standardized NDF uh, digestibilities, and looking at the total track NDF digestibility number of 49.88. One thing I like about Rock River is they put a 60-day average for all the corn silage that have come through the lab, as well as a four-year average. So you can see where you compare to um, what's happened over the last four years, as well as what's happened uh, coming through the lab over the last 60 days. So again, going back to the sample monitoring system, this sample got a little um, wetter on this last test that we took at the end of February. We have been running 33% or so on dry matter, down down to 31.9. So the, the computer flagged it and said, hey, we need to put this dry matter down based on the last five samples. You can also see that NDIP changed a little bit. It's been increasing over the last five samples. And our traditional NDF uh, digestibility um, has gone up as well at 68. The starch numbers, the digestibility on those um, have gone up as well, and you can see that our, our next column there, the B1 KD rate, has gone from a 16.2, 14.7, and now we're at 18.4. This is a number that we are incorporating into AMCS and uh, using that on our feedstuffs. So this is the high-cal premix on this dairy. We are using a, a cottonseed blend of a 50-50 blend of whole cottonseed and cracked Pima at 4.25 pounds, 3 pounds of almond hulls, 3 pounds of soybean meal, 3 pounds of canola, 1.75 pounds of molasses, and 1.46 pounds of, of uh, high cow mineral. We're feeding a total of, of 5.25 pounds of dry hay in this ration. We have several different hays that we're feeding a little bit of. So we have a total of 5.25 pounds of, of dry hay plus that high cow premix that we just looked at, 16.46. We also are feeding wet distillers here at five pounds. Have some haylage that we're feeding at two and a half pounds, 16 pounds of rolled corn, and 19 and a half pounds of silage. We use both the conventional silage at nine pounds and then that shreddage that we looked at at 10 and a half pounds. Cost on this ration on 64.7 pounds of dry matter is $9.27. And our predicted milk on ME is 100 and on MP is 105. Running about a 16 and a half crude protein on this ration with the physically effective fiber at 21.5 and NDF at 30.16. Sugars are at 6.69 and the starts at 27.4. So some of the variability that we see when we're looking out on the dairy, this is uh, some of the pictures that I've taken on some of my herds. The feeder didn't want to get off the tractor to put the mineral into the bucket, so he decided to just dump it on the ground and scoop it up when he got the hay. And this isn't helping the cows. It's not helping the milk production. It's not helping anybody. Another issue is water. It's a very important nutrient for cattle, and when I wouldn't want to drink out of this water trough, and I don't know if the cows would either. 
This picture I took just based on sorting. You can see that the, the ration is, is not being mixed very well. Most of the hay ended up on the top, and most of the silage is underneath. And these are the things that uh, are affecting the variability of feeding dairy cattle. Another issue is how well we're managing our, our silages. This is a, a pile that I, a picture of a pile that I took that was full of molds throughout because he was cutting from the side instead of across the whole face. And when the cow gets that piece of mold, it's not going to affect her very well. Another issue that we see a lot is empty bunks, trying to keep uh, the bunks as clean as possible, but this bunk is too clean. These cows were just coming out of the barn and had no feed in front of them and weren't going to be fed for another two hours. It affects the bottom line. Another thing is temperature on feeds. This is a, a pile of rolled corn that uh, had just been delivered and was getting close to 120 degrees Fahrenheit. Is that going to cause mold in the cows? Is that going to cause the cows to back off on intakes as well? This is uh, just looking at the high temperature um, where I'm at here in Visalia, California, over the last four years, and just showing that we get up to anywhere from 95 to 100 in the summertime, and in the winter times we're down in the 45s and 50s. Yesterday here in, in California we were 84 degrees, and I think our spring is already over and we're coming into summer. With that, I'm, I just want to push a focus on cow cooling. I think it's very important to keep these cows cool during the summertime, and um, especially in the holding pens. We seem to see uh, our biggest response is when we get cows cooled in the holding pen. These are just some examples of the cooling that we use on California dairies. And with that, that concludes my presentation. I've uh, put my email up here. If any of you have questions, I'd be happy to answer them now, or you can email me and uh, I will respond. Okay, Mike, I'm going to um, briefly say a few things, and then we'll um, discuss the polls, and we'll go back to um, question and answer for you. I want to thank you, Mike, for the terrific presentation. I want to invite our listeners to be sure to attend the next webinar held on April 8th at 6 p.m. UTC minus 4. Um, the presenter will be Dr. Tom Taluki, who holds a Ph.D. from Cornell University and is the CEO of AMTS. Tom's Ph.D. work brought forth major changes in the CMCPS model. Tom continues to contribute to model development and is considered one of the very few primary global authorities on how it functions. Tom will be speaking about how using the model to precision feed cattle can result in optimal animal performance. Save the date and time, April 8th at 6 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. I want to also thank the people that put this together, and I've put a slide up so that you can see who they are and how you can contact us. All right, this is from Dwight Rosler in the U.S. How much of the variability in the NDF content of feeds was due to the different methods of NDF analysis? Um, Tom can also unmute his mic if he wants to answer some of these questions, but we'll talk to the first mic to Groot. Uh, that's a very good question. I'm not sure on the methods that uh, the NRC used per se. Uh, I know that the methods used for Arthur Steady and UC Davis were the same. Okay, very good. Excellent. 
Mike as well as always a great job, very clear presentation. Before we're here, we we're very glad we have a full room of 100 people, yeah. and I think you have contributed a lot for our understanding of how to use a little bit more byproducts. Thanks a lot. We also have partnered with University of Wisconsin use the Feedball. I think you know about that. It's a great tool to compare byproducts and which ones are better to use. So we provide that for our clients too. But I think your, your tool is also very great. I would like to go back in the first question that we had and compare Brazil, Argentina, United States. When you use byproducts, what is your main objective? Um, it looks like primarily people are interested in price. Yeah. Just to give you a quick summary. Yeah, uh, because that web went too fast here. That, uh, I would expect that, the same in Brazil. But uh, I'm very surprised on the good side that people understand the value that you can balance diet better when you have byproducts because some of them do allow for lower variability. So uh, th that's a thing that we're training more and more people to understand that uh, not only price, but uh, I think uh, being able to formulate for amino acids and video fatty acids, all those metabolized protein and everything, sometimes you're just locked with forage and corn and soybean. Mike, would you like, would you like to comment on that? What's the question again, Marcelo? I apologize. The difference between Brazil, United States, and Argentina, uh, I understand the price is very important, but the other benefits of byproducts that we are seeing in Brazil is very good. Yeah, no, same for us out here. Um, I, I think the biggest thing for us is is just the availability of enough forage. We do not have enough forage to feed our cows out here, so we have to use byproducts. We would not have a dairy industry in California without them. Excellent. I, uh, Mary, you, you're conducting this, but uh, when I have a chance, I'd like to go back to the four uh, questions that we have, and then I have open up for questions, okay? We have several questions here in Brazil. Okay. Um, I, right now, I, Marcelo, I think you continue to have the floor. For the second question, how often you analyze the forage at your farm? Uh, I'm very surprised that uh, I think we're doing a great job now in Brazil that people are understanding the value of analyzing the forage, at least when you do a medium job, a good job in Brazil, you can feed 50% of the forage. Uh, very hard for us to pass that value. But uh, sometimes in a year, we got 49% of that, and every month, 24% is a big surprise. We have a big challenge to overcome. Uh, on the California side, Mike, how often do you like to analyze our forage in our clients? We're on most of our clients' uh, herds twice a month, and every time we are on the farm, we are pulling a sample. Okay. Thank you, Marianne. Do you hear me? Yes, I do. Okay. Uh, I wanted to thank Mike for the presentation. Um, okay. I, I will go right to the question. It is uh, which, which do you think – is the cause of the huge variation to different labs? Uh, very good question. One that I'm trying to find out an answer for, and that's kind of the reason we looked at the, the different labs. I think it could be just the methods like Dr. Rosler was talking about. Um, I think we can um, 
try to work on our methods a little better and get these labs a little more consistent. My my comment on that is once you do use a lab, stay with those numbers. It's not easy to be switching between labs because you will have variation. So once you're comfortable with the lab, I would recommend staying with it. Okay. Um, Paula, did you have another question while your mic is open? Yes. Okay. Yes, I do. Uh, when you use a byproduct, uh, do you adjust dry matter intake? Um, no, I do not adjust dry matter intake. I, I look at uh, the output of of uh, where they're at, especially um, like if I'm using a lot of byproducts, uh, carbohydrate C, for example, if that number goes up, I know that's going to be affecting intake. So with some of the new stuff that's coming out on the new model with uh, the undigestible NDF, uh, 240 hour, those type of things, I could affect the intakes quite a bit. I let the cows tell me more so than anything what uh, is what their intakes are doing and then adjust it from there. I have a question here on my side. This is from Rick Welch. He says, Mike said they run forage samples every time they're on the farm. How often do you test byproducts, particularly DDS? So that one in particular we try to run – there's only three plants here in, in California. So we try to get at least a sample from each plant once a quarter. And uh, on the other other products, we don't do a whole lot of that. We use a lot of more of the book values, or from the lab, we can get a, an analysis of what's been ran through the farm or through the, the lab over the last year, um, however long we want to go back. But particularly on distillers, we do run one at least a quarter. Marcelo, do you have a question? Excellent. I want to comment. A little bit first on the, the pupils, and then we have several good questions here. Excellent questions, actually. So how do you decide on utilization of byproducts? I think from your presentation, Mike, you did a great job. There is variation. A lot of time we just pull a feed sample from the library, throw it in the farm, and want to balance for the exactly dry matting breaking and, and metabolize the protein, metabolize energy. But we forget that there is huge variation. So 40% of the Brazilians say they use soft balanced diet, and 45% said they utilize the most common, common feedstuff in the region. Taking account on that question, I have a, a good question here for you, Mike. Uh, forget about price. Which byproduct uh, would you like to use that's good for the diet and good for the cows, no matter what? Uh, very good question. I would say out of the byproducts that we looked at on that study, uh, mine would have to be cottonseed. Um, I prefer having that in the ration. Excellent. And then the fourth one, uh, when you use the byproducts, uh, which value went there in your software, we see here that about 47% uh, said central lab and uh, wait for analysis. I think that's Argentina. But half of them use values that are presented in the software formulation. Again, we really need to be careful on that because we might be off a couple of units uh, when you analyze for that. Uh, following the same questions, which category at the dairy farm 
you tend to use more byproducts, like the dairy, the cows are milking, the dry cows, the close-up cows, the heifers. Oh, I, I use I use different byproducts on different groups of cattle. Um, I, I can get away with a lot more on the heifers, so I will use a lot of byproducts on the heifers where I can. And on the milk cows, um, I use more of the staple byproducts, some of the ones that we used in this study. Okay. Um, Marcelo, I'm going to go to Paula because I think she has another question. Yes, I, I do. Uh, Mike, what is your opinion about news technology? I think the, the near-infrared is, is a great system. Um, I prefer it for forages because that's where the calibrations are, are, are good. Uh, I'm not completely sold on, on some of these byproducts running them through the near-infrared system. I would recommend using wet chemistry until I know the numbers are correct. Questions are coming up here. People are still up, and they really like my presentation. Uh, people are wondering, what is your maximum level of uh, cotton seed, citrus pulp, and soy hulls and corn gluten feed? I think those are the most common byproducts that we use in Brazil. And a lot of times we want to know the maximum level that we can add up to diet without compromised performance. Sure. So, our, 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 we'll start with cottonseed. My, my level, I, I get comfortable up to about six pounds. With the, the uh, that's six pounds of dry matter. With the Pima, you got to be a little more cautious because it is cracked. So you could have very high gossypol levels that are available. I will not feed more than three pounds of cracked Pima. Okay, well, what about citrus pulp and carnival to feed? On the citrus pulp, I, I will feed up to about two and a half pounds of dry matter. Now, our citrus pulp out here is wet. It's running about 15 to 17 dry matter. So I'll feed up to about two and a half pounds of dry matter. And on corn gluten feed, depending on the, the, the group of cattle, we've gone as high as 10 pounds of dry matter on the corn gluten feed. Thank you. Here we go. Mike, uh, I think you have some experience with really low forage in a diet. Uh, and we have some situations here a lot of times that we don't have enough forage for the whole year. And there are farms that they really want to use low amount of corn silage or sorghum silage or some, sometimes sugarcane silage. What is the minimum uh, amount of forage that you have been able to use with success in a deer farm? Oh, boy. Uh, I, I think that there's a lot of factors that go into that, Marcelo. Um, the biggest one is, is uh, you know, what the milk production level of that herd is. I, I can get away with a lot more on the lower producing herds. So that's I, I can't give you a number right off the top that says this is the lowest forage I've fed. Um, I will say that we've been feeding very low hay amounts because of the price and very, you know, putting in almond holes and other products like soy hole pellets and getting away with uh, that no problem. Um, our lowest herd was 1.75 pounds of dry hay total, and uh, we were feeding some almond holes, some soy hole pellets, and uh, quite a bit of silage there, and still pulling 80 pounds plus on milk. So, Excellent. Thank you. 
Okay, I have a question. Um, this is from Fred Rasmussen. Mike, your milk fat chart shows seasonal variability, but it also showed a trend towards increasing milk fat on a year-to-year -year basis. What accounts for the increasing milk fat trend? Uh, great question. I, I think in, in, in terms of feeding cattle, we're getting better. Uh, I, look at, I look at the room and it's the black box that we've been and uh, with the, the new tests that we're running and, and being able to have a better handle on um, some of the digestibilities of these feeds, I think we're able to um, lower that a little bit and uh, lower that the variability by time. Okay, thanks, Mike. I'm going to um, unmute Paula. She has some more questions. Go ahead, Paula. Yes, here I am. Comparing soybean meal with soybean expellers, what can you tell us about protein and fatty acid quality? Uh, not much, Paula. I don't. I haven't uh, looked at the, the differences between those two. That and Tom might be able to speak more on that than me. I actually like being muted. This is relaxing. <laughs> um, so the soybean meal that we typically feed in the U.S. is solvent, so it's very low. It's typically less than 2% um, total fat <clears throat> and versus anything coming out of the expellers. The variability in oil content in the expellers is tremendous. Uh, and and that, that's a major concern, uh, especially for the folks in Argentina and in Brazil, because we, there's a lot of that stuff available there, that we can easily push these cows into milk fat depression due to just overall fatty acid load. Um, the protein level is going to, the crude protein will vary along with inversely to the fat level. Uh, these cold expellers really don't do any cooking of the meal, uh, so it's still a pretty highly degradable protein source, uh, but it, it's the oil that we've really got to watch. Thanks, Tom. Um, Paula has another question, so go ahead, Paula. Yeah. If, if you are using meals, how often do you uh, would you send a, a sample to for um, what chemistry? On a forage, Paula? Yes. Uh, on a forage, I, I, I very rarely send any in for wet chemistry. Um, the only thing that we are running wet chemistry on our forages is for the minerals, for DCAD. And, uh, but just a nutrient analysis, we run exclusively NIR. Marcelo has another question. We have a problem here in Brazil that uh, we're working a lot in terms of fiber quality and fiber digestibility in the being bad for corn silage. And uh, these guys, uh, also Machado asked it, uh, because of this low quality of corn silage in the wouldn't byproducts be a solution and help them? I would say yes. I haven't seen any of your samples from down there, Marcelo, but uh, I would say yes. If you if you have a low fiber digestibility on a, a corn silage, um, it's like baking a cake, right? The recipe that uh, calls for whatever you need to make that cake, and 
the cow doesn't necessarily have a, a corn silage requirement. She has a fiber requirement. And if you can get some higher digestibility out of some of the byproducts, I would recommend going that route. Thank you. Marcella, do you have some more follow-up questions? Yeah, I have one for Igor, from Igor Carneiro, and that's a difficult question for you, Mike. What is the minimal level of starch that you like to balance for? Hmm. Uh, again, based on production, um, I would say we we run a, a, our high-cal rations. If we're looking at, at the way we formulate on dairies, most of our dairies we have three milk cow rations. It would be a fresh cow ration, a high cow, and then a maintenance ration. And I would say on the high cow ration, I, I won't go it's, – it's tough because depending on the amount of sugars and fat I have as well, um, those are two things that I look at. But uh, I've been as low as 22% starch. That's, that's, that's still good. That's still, <laughs> that's still good, yes. Yes. Okay. Uh, Marcella, we have a question from Paula, so I'm going to mute you and open up Paula's mic. Okay, Mike, as our labs are very low, which measurements or analysis would you do regularly for my product? So, yeah, I, I, I think this is something that we've been working on um, with Tom, too, is, is what what is what are the analyses that we need to run. And I think some of these digestibility um, factors and getting some of these rates on these byproducts um, I think is good to do. There, there, I don't think there's any data out there um, looking at some of these byproducts and looking at digestion rates. Um, for me, those are the most important. And just looking at the overall nutrient analysis, I would like to know energy values, protein, and fiber values for sure. You can see on some of the, the slides that I showed that uh, a lot of the minerals didn't vary too much. There were a few that did, but most of the mineral side is So I would, I would focus more on the, the digestibility rates and um, pre-protein, fiber, and energy levels. Marcella is going to ask a question while we try to work on that one. Okay. Okay, uh, Mike, what do you consider good uh, TTNFD for a byproduct? And uh, do you see any difference when you have citrus fruit that's uh, dark and the one that's more light in terms of, uh, well, you comment on that. So on the, on the TTNFD side, um, again, there's not a lot of data out there on the byproducts. And we're working with Rock River Labs to get that uh, changed. We don't have a lot of digestibility data, not a lot of the, the rate um, KDs. We don't have a lot of that on these byproducts. And um, I think that's something that we want we want to get done sooner than later. Um, when you're looking at the citrus, when I see the darker citrus, a lot of that is the, the sugars that are, are being caramelized. And based on that, I will see a difference in how the cows uh, respond to it, uh, normally in a dry matter intake uh, depression. Okay, thank you. Okay, Marcelo, I'm going to go to Paula for another question. All right, go ahead, Paula. Oh, okay. Mike, do you have an opinion about sorghum silage, about its digestibility? Yes, I do. Uh, we we are we're a little behind the eight ball here in, in California. More and more sorghum is being grown here. Uh, mainly because of our water situation, but uh, I, I think sorghum can work. Um, I think the thing with sorghum silage is 
it's it's a pretty good digestible piece. It works well in rations, and we can make up the starch based on you know rolled corn or other other ingredient. So when those products are, are cheaper, it's uh, easier to get away with that. If I had to rank silages out here in California, I would say corn silage is number one, sorghum number two, and wheat silage number three. Yeah, Mike. Uh, thanks you mentioned cotton seed. Uh, there's some. There's a group of nutritionists here that telling that um, they kind of see cotton seed as a necessity. Can you hear me? Or? Yes. Uh, they kind of see cotton seed as a necessity for to feed for the dairy herd during the during the hot summers, hot hot months. Do you use any byproduct when it's really hot in California just to overcome the heat problem? Um, no, I, I can't say that I necessarily change my diets based on the weather. Um, we, we try to change them more based on the forages that we're feeding. So if I'm feeding four pounds of cottonseed in the winter, I'm probably feeding four pounds in the summertime as well. Okay, just to uh, take advantage of here because we're kind of running short of time, do you do anything to check the diet you're formulated and the diet that they're being delivered to the cow? Or do you do any testing? Do you do Penn State? Do you send to a lab? What, do you, what, what is your deal? Yeah, we, we run Penn State shaker boxes on, on farm um, at least once a month, if not more. Uh, try to do a few different rations just so we have an idea of what the cows are actually eating. Um, I don't do a whole lot of TMR sampling. I, I prefer to do the individual ingredients and, and uh, make sure that it's getting mixed properly. And uh, I feel I have a better handle on that than running a TMR sample. Thank okay, you. Uh, Marcelo, I'm going to mute you, and we've got we're going to uh -huh. unmute Tom, and he's got. Yes. Hi, Mike. Great job. Particularly enjoyed your your uh, dealing with the variation. Like Tom, I'm from the east originally and trained in the east. See a lot of high higher starch diets there than we do here in the west. I've worked in Idaho for the last ten years or so. And in Idaho, it's quite common to have high byproduct feeds with a lot of of MDF and not so much starch. The, the typical Idaho diet would be much lower in starch than what we see in the east. You showed a couple of diets here. Um, one was about 25% starch, if I remember correctly, one about 27. Pretty high levels of uh, sugar in both of them, I think. I'm just curious, when you're feeding high byproduct diets, what carbohydrate fractions are you paying the most attention to? And what what is the what is a high carbohydrate I'm sorry, a high byproduct diet sort of look like to you from the carbohydrate uh, fraction side? Well, what are the most important fractions that you're paying attention to? Uh, great, great question, Buzz. Uh, you know, I would I would say that what I first look at is my total sugar and total starch, and and yes, both those rations were high starch. Um, I, I try not to get above about 30 to 32 on the total of sugar and starch together. Uh, another number that I look at is just the total fat in the ration. 
Um, My my consideration of of high is is above 5% ether extract. And just looking at the total unsaturates as well, I don't I don't want a whole lot over three on on the uh, total unsaturates. But I think the biggest thing that I look at is is how much fiber do I have in the ration and, and what can I get away with. Um, the more fiber I do have, the the higher I can play with starch levels and sugar levels. In fiber, in terms of what which parameter for fiber. Uh, mainly effect, mainly effective NDF and NDF. Repeat that, Mike. I don't think you, you both were talking there for a minute. Oh, okay, Ma- mainly effective NDF and NDF. Super. Thanks again. That, that was great, and I apologize. I couldn't get my mic working earlier. Okay. Thank you very much, Buzz, and thanks for for bearing with us. Um, Paula has another question. I'm going to unmute her mic. Yes, I do. Uh, for Mike or, or Tom, uh, do you use sources of protected amino acids in your diet? If you do, what is your experience about it? <laughs> Go ahead, Dr. Tom. Oh, oh we, we have very different experiences in this, don't we, Mike? Yes, we do. <laughs> I do. I do routinely, uh, both lichen and methionine, uh, and I've had, oh, boy, I've had, hard to say, milk yield, definitely milk components. Uh, I also use them in, in uh, preparto, uh, and I see a nice, uh, I think there's the data supports doing that for fresh cow health. I understand. haven't done a whole lot with it. Um, we're in the process of uh, looking into doing some more amino acid balancing, but uh, have not done too much with it out here. Okay. Um, Paula, do you have any more questions? I think I don't. Okay. I'm going to see if Marcelo does. Uh, I think a good question here for you, Mike. Can you take away all the protein from soybean and all the corn and you only use byproduct? Do you have experience doing that? Oh, I haven't tried that, Marcelo. Um, yeah, it'd be pretty tough, but I think we can get pretty close. Um, yeah, I have not tried that, just going without corn and soybean meal and feeding more byproduct. Okay, one more here real quick. Uh, the, the nutritionist is asking, when you formulate diets, do you formulate for the average standard deviation, type 5%, 10%, above or below dry matter intake, MP and ME? What, what do you look for when you formulate? So we, we, we are formulating for the average of the pen. So whatever my highest pen of cattle is, that's what we're formulating for. Thank you. Okay, I think that um, we're we're possibly winding down on questions. Okay, um, I want to thank Mike DeGroote very much for for his his um, participating in this great experiment that we're doing. Um, we again want to remind you to come back at the end of each, or at the second Wednesday of the month. We had a little bit of a um, 
rough start this year or this month because we suddenly discovered we have daylight saving time and Brazil went off daylight saving time. So it messed with our, our seminar, our, our webinar presentation time. I want to thank the people who make this possible. Tom Taluki with AMTS, USA and Global, Marcelo Hentz Ramos at 3R Lab in Brazil, and Paula Torillo in Argentina. They really are the, the group that came up with this idea. Our translators in each location, Andrea and Paula in Argentina and Isabella in Brazil, they always have a challenge to keep up with all of this. And we're thanking, um, we're going to thank Progressive Dairyman for promoting this webinar. The archive presentations are available at our website. And we also want to thank Ajinomoto, US, Heartland USA, for their sponsorship of these webinar series. Thank you very much, Mike DeGroot. Make sure you all come back next, next time for, for Tom's presentation. And I will be emailing all of the participants with the links for the webinars when we get it recorded, probably tomorrow. Um, if there's nothing else, I will close the webinar at this point. Thanks very much.